Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. Vancouver might be the car-sharing capital of North America, but a new assessment reveals the city's reputation as a multimodal haven might be at risk. Move Me founder Sandra Phillips, she's going to join us on the show in just a few moments, delving into the transportation challenges that lay ahead for Vancouver. First, though, I do want to mention an upcoming BIV event, February 28th at the Shangri-La Hotel. The newspaper is facilitating an expert retirement-ready panel discussion on how and when to retire and how you should embrace what should be the most triumphant years of a longer life. You can find more details at BIV.com slash events. And a little bit later on today's show, retail insider's Craig Patterson, he's going to dig into all the latest news around the retail scene That includes the draw of high-end luxury stores for children, big expansion plans for some of BC's most recognizable brands, and how co-working spaces are transforming Granville Street here in Vancouver. Finally, one last event that I want to highlight on February 21st, again, at the Shangri-La Hotel. We're going to have another expert panel, this time focused on due diligence and valuation when buying a business. You can find more details at BIV.com slash events. Now let's go ahead and speak to MoveMe's Sandra Phillips. Vancouver has a reputation as the car-sharing capital of the continent, but is the city at risk of losing its edge as a multimodal leader? A new assessment from MoveMe Shared Transportation Services shows Vancouver's status might just be slipping to a certain degree. With us today to dive deeper is MoveMe founder Sandra Phillips. Sandra, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. So you've just released this new Shared Mobility City Index, and it's ranking 20 major North American cities. But before we get into Vancouver standing, tell me a little bit about what factors you are evaluating right now in this assessment. So we're looking at five criteria. They're all weighted a little bit differently. Um, Anything from commuting patterns, which is uh, very important in how people move around, um, to the city's sustainability, which has a role to play um, when it comes to, you know, new forms of transportation, but maybe not as critical. So for us, it's weighted a little less. Um, so I'm curious, though, with regards to Vancouver standing here, it actually shows in this latest index that it's slipped from number five down to number mm-hmm. seven. Tell us a little bit about our performance in this latest mm-hmm. assessment. So Vancouver has, as you mentioned in the introduction, kind of the name or fame for being the largest and biggest car sharing population and also, quite frankly, the largest car sharing fleet. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it made itself a name um, for being at the forefront. And, and the city of Vancouver itself has been um, at the forefront of building policy and um regulations that support car sharing in particular um, and it still does that uh, they just released like one of the plans that we looked at is, is their new uh, transportation demand management um, incentive for new development so anytime a new building goes up um, there's some support if you put new forms of mobility but it's very very focused still around car sharing now 
the rest of the world or the rest of the North American world has uh, made the leap from not just car sharing, but especially this micromobility craze. So, you know, electric scooters, electric bikes, electric mopeds, um, doing this first and last mile, the short trips, you know, between your home and, and the public transit station with maybe smaller vehicles um, that don't take up quite as much space um, and are a little more nimble to navigate. And, and I, that's really the major um, piece where Vancouver has kind of flipped. Like we haven't, we don't really have any support, um, even in this TDM, in this transportation demand management policy that's very, very progressive for North American city. There's no mention of that. Well, I'm curious, though, how much of it comes down to the city versus maybe, say, rules and regulations that exist within the province? Because I know if we're talking about, say, some of these micro transit options, mm -hmm. some of them are, say, motorized vehicles, uh, however you mm -hmm. wish to define it. And maybe it comes into the under the purview of the province. And I'm wondering if you're getting the sense that there could be efforts underway to maybe change the way mm -hmm. that we're approaching this. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and you're absolutely right. Even on the car sharing side, there there was kind of a, a a joint approach. There had to be some things changed on the provincial, and quite frankly, also on the ICBC regulation, and then eventually, or an ICCC's policies, I should say, and then eventually uh, the city could do. But the city has um, quite, um, how should I say? They they essentially control what's going on on their curbs and on their streets, and so they have um, some option, especially on the electric bike side. Um, you know, some other motorized vehicles maybe a little bit less, but on the electric bike side, I do feel um, that there is possibility for for even a city to do something. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like another um, uh, kind of bucket of of transportation new transportation services is the peer-to-peer -peer car sharing and mm. Vancouver doesn't have that at all and that really hinges on the on the provincial legislation so as much as um tour I mean Turo ha has entered the VC market but with a slightly different model um than than they normally would do but yes you're right there is a play with both of them um having said that it's a bit of a shame that we can't position Vancouver at the forefront again, just like in the, in the past. One of the other things that you highlight here in this assessment is peer-to-peer -peer car sharing, which you mentioned just a moment ago, mm -hmm. as well as one-way car sharing. For those who aren't super familiar with it, which I suspect would be quite a number of our listeners, just since it's not available here in Vancouver, tell us a little bit about these options and why they might be useful here in a city like ours. So peer-to-peer -peer car sharing is is really essentially you have you already own a vehicle um, and you would like to share this. Let's say you go on vacation, you don't need your vehicle um, during that time. Now you would like to share it with somebody else um, that may be visiting the city. So it's essentially a little bit like the Airbnb <laughs> of vehicles, um, and it really uh, works well for people who don't either don't own a vehicle and live here and want to do um, maybe longer trips and go okay, skiing or, or um, to Kelowna in the summer. Um, so it really gears towards that um, trip and that, that usage. And then you have um, the, the other, the one way that you just mentioned, um, it's 
one way car sharing is really most beneficial when you have electric car sharing. So when you have, you know, um, they start in one place and, and stop or have to end in another place. So not like car to go and evil where you can leave it anywhere, but you essentially leave it at a charging station. So that type of car sharing we also don't have. In fact, we have very little electric um vehicles in our in our current car sharing fleet evo is all hybrid which is fantastic and cardigo has a few um electric vehicles but vancouver would be um, a great city to have electric vehicles and i actually should just as a caveat i should mention that um the local car share model does have electric vehicle but again it's really available well one of the other options that we don't have and which i think is very uh, conspicuously absent is ride hailing mm-hmm. and it's still very unclear when it will be arriving in mm-hmm. british columbia what impact is this having on our transportation options versus say other cities across north america so i always like to say essentially shared mobility um and public transit have to kind of build an an ecosystem with lots of different options. So you want to have lots of different choices because we have, you know, let's say if you go um, on a Friday night, you go to Gastown and you need a ride home. Well, now you've been drinking. Now you actually do need a ride hailing option um, yep. or or some some other option. Or but or let's say it's a nice day and and you do want to bike. Um, to be more active, then it would be nice if, if we had these micro-mobility options. So essentially, you want to have lots of choice um, for different uses, but you also want to have a large network because the more, um, the reason Vancouver has, I think it's over a third of Vancouver's population is subscribed to car sharing, is because it has this large fleet and it starts to become very reliable. Um, so once people feel like I really don't have to worry about whether or not I can get from A to B, you know, stringing all these different options together, then it becomes viable for people to not own cars because um, they they don't feel um, hindered in in where they want to go and their their daily you know um, travel patterns and choices they make. So. The reason it's a it's a challenge to so come back to your questions why ride hailing is a challenge because it's one piece in its whole ecosystem, and it just meets certain um, needs on a on a daily basis or on a weekly basis for people, and that's why it would be important to have uh, this mix, and that's why a city like Samson, anything from you know uh, peer to peer to all, all sorts of micro mobility options. Um, to car sharing, to even microtransit options, they just meet kind of the gaps of where public transit can't or isn't available uh, and people can get to it easier. So, Well, one last question for you, and then I'll let you go. Uh, TransLink, a few weeks ago, they announced a multimodal partnership with mm-hmm. Moto and Evo Car Share, as well as Moby Bike Share. What does this spell for the future of transportation options in the region if we have a lot of these players getting together to try to figure out solutions? It's probably the most exciting development. Like mm. um, we've been working with TransLink and we're super happy that this is, is happening um, because this is exactly what I just described at the end. You want to have this ecosystem and then the next step is connecting it. So for the user, it becomes a seamless trip. There is a buzzword in our industry called mobility as a service. Um, you can call it mobility as a service, or you could just simply say we're integrating the different options. Um, and, and that can be, you know, initially it's uh, possibly just 
you can use the compass card, I don't know, but you could use that um, to get in and out of the vehicles. Um, and eventually it might become something like an app where you can book um, your trip from your home all the way to your office and you string all these options together. Um, so I'm super excited that this is happening. And I think this is again, um, if when we do the next iteration of the Share Mobility City Index, um, this will be one of the pieces that will be crucial to see where where you know cities position themselves and the fact that vancouver is starting to do that i'm my hope because i'm based in vancouver quite frankly is that vancouver will move back up um you know in the ranking with doing things like this well very exciting time in the world of transportation right now and uh sandra i want to thank you for joining us on the program today thank you very much tyler for having us again that is Sandra Phillips. She is the founder of MoveMe. And stay with us. Next up, we're going to speak to Craig Patterson. He's the editor-in-chief of RetailInsider.com, talking all about the latest news in the world of retail. And with us now, it's Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of RetailInsider.com. Craig, it's been a little while, pre-Christmas, I believe, but I want to thank you for joining us on the show once again. Yes, Happy New Year. Okay, so why don't we just jump right into this ongoing transformation that we see along Granville Street. Now we have co-working spaces that are popping up pretty much everywhere you go all around Vancouver. But what I'm intrigued by right now and that what you're documenting here is the, the transformation of the Tom Lee building, that very iconic building on Granville Street. Tell us a little bit about what is unfolding there. Uh, it's interesting. Um, it's a co-working uh, building, I guess you would say. It's almost like a little office building run by a company called Spaces. And uh, Deloitte has uh, announced that it's going to be uh, moving 700 of its staff in there temporarily while uh, uh, its new office is being built on West Georgia Street. So uh, what I think is really interesting about this is we're seeing a bit of a transformation of Granville Street. Uh, when you get, you know, 700 professionals, uh, you know, spending time in an area which, you know, may not have been as vibrant as it could have been during the day, uh, I think it stands to transform the neighborhood. And then on top of that, some of the bars which were only open in the evenings are starting to offer uh, meal service during the day. So this could represent the transformation of the street into something perhaps even more like Robson Street. Yeah, I think it is interesting having that professional aspect in it. And as you say, this Deloitte, I mean, this is just going to be the first instance of bringing professionals in. But with co-working spaces, by their very nature, you're going to have a diverse group of individuals streaming in, streaming out. I, I really do think that there will be some interesting changes afoot for that particular sector. I think so. Um, you know, we're seeing quite a bit of that in downtown Vancouver. Real estate prices are high and Vancouver's in a tech boom. So uh, you know, office spaces at a premium. It's, I think, one of the two tightest markets in North America. I think the other one's Toronto, actually, which is interesting that it's Canada, uh, you know, having the tightest office market. But, uh, you know, downtown Vancouver is booming right now. And uh, real estate prices are very high in the city, for, you know, generally. And uh, I think we'll see more of this. I mean, you know, people might use the word gentrification. And I, I think that would be accurate for what we would see in, in parts of Granville Street, which, you know, has struggled for a few decades. Uh, I think it's going to come around. The other thing that is worth noting here with regards to trends is you know, the city has actually seen more of these kind of high-end luxury retailers that are geared towards kids' products. I have to say, 
Uh, my parents, they were not shopping at high-end stores for me growing up. Uh, tell me a little bit about what this new trend means for not just parents, but children and the kinds of products that are being a little bit more ubiquitous here in Vancouver. Uh, it's an interesting trend, um, and it's something not being seen as much in the rest of Canada, from what I can tell. Um, Vancouver's seen several uh, very high-end children's stores opening, uh, and uh, Quite recently, actually, uh, one of them, uh, you know, is in South Granville. Uh, you've got a few in Carisdale, and and these are really serving, I think, a population that lives in the West Side that has children. Now, I think that's limited in terms of I think that they've shown that the population of children in the West Side, uh, you know, is lower than it has been in decades past. You know, the dynamics of the neighborhood is changing. The average house price might be over four million dollars in some neighborhoods, or at least before prices started going down. And uh, I think it really speaks to the affluence of the West Side. Uh, So if you think about it, if there's fewer kids, but their parents are buying expensive clothing, then, you know, the West Side has basically become Beverly Hills. Well, it also makes me wonder, think about if you take a stroll down Yale Town and you have all those high-end luxury pet stores as well. I I wonder if this is kind of their version of those nice pet stores that are spreading up all across, well, I would say uh, just a lot of it is centered in Yale town. Yeah, no, I mean, pets are kind of the children of, uh, you know, some downtown dwellers who yeah. either don't have kids or choose not to. So, you know, that is almost like uh, high-end children's stores just, you know, for pets. <laughs> That's a very, very good point. But if, if we're talking about, you know, children's stores, we also know that Jimboree is going bankrupt, and we understand that all 49 of the Canadian locations are closing down Help us wrap our head around what has transpired with Jimboree. Is it part of this kind of retail apocalypse that we've been talking about for a few years, or is there something altogether going on with how this unfolded? Well, I don't think there's, at least in Canada, you know, a retail apocalypse, which, you know, certainly a narrative that uh, we've seen in parts of the United States. Uh, I think that, you know, consumer tastes have changed changed a bit and you know i'm not an expert in the area you know or jimboree just because i don't have kids and uh you know i I, it's not a retailer that i spent much time with uh, but perhaps that's actually one of the reasons why it's gone under is i don't know if uh, if jimboree was you know the most exciting retailer for people uh it had great spaces though in some shopping centers so you know it's not going to be as challenging to fill some of those spaces as it might uh, other retailers like say sears for example but uh uh, you know, I think that things are just changing. There's a lot of competition in that area. And uh, unfortunately, they weren't able to, uh, you know, get their finances under control. One of the things that I am fascinated about here in British Columbia as well is just how some notable BC brands are continuing to expand. Indochino, for example, they're planning to grow quite significantly in 2019. And I'm curious how other regions across the world are taking to these tailor-made suits that Indochino is so well known for. I think it's really interesting. Indochino has you know, exploded in popularity and in growth. And I think that that's quite remarkable because, you know, it, it started, you know, it had very humble beginnings. You know, a couple of guys, I think, uh, who are friends at university, you know, started making suits online and started traveling around, you know, this traveling tailor and then opened showrooms. And now we've got, you know, plans for over 100 showrooms globally, but who knows how many. I mean, I think that they're still testing the waters. So uh, I think the business model is interesting because if you think about it, they don't have a ton of stock. Uh, They don't have to because you're ordering the product. So I think that, you know, those costs are able uh, to be uh, kept under control because that is, you know, one of the major expenses for a lot of retailers. You know, there's rent and there's staff and there's the 
cost of product. And if they're able to get the cost of product uh, under control, they've got more, uh, you know, finances potentially to to open storefronts. So that's, I think, what's happening right now is we're seeing this global expansion. And it sounds like it will be natural global expansion outside of uh, Canada and the United States. And I, I don't want to kick a retailer, well, like a, a kitten ace, for example, I don't want to kick kitten ace while they're still down. But you kind of look at that example and it seemed as if maybe there's more of that unsustainable growth that was going on, which is why they had to pull back significantly. But in your opinion, does it seem just by its very nature, as you say, they don't have to keep any stock really in store, that it's more along the lines of having a more sustainable growth pattern moving forward? I think so. I mean, the the growth that we're seeing with Indochino is primarily, you know, I guess, brick and mortar uh, real estate. And, uh, you know, of course, the staffing that would go along with that. But, um, you know, they've got Indochino signed a lease on Madison Avenue. I don't know what the rent would have been, but I'm sure it was absolutely astronomical. Yeah. Uh, Madison Avenue in New York City, that is, uh, for those who don't know it. And, uh, you know, I mean, that right there, when I saw that as a piece of real estate, I thought, oh, my goodness, like, I hope this doesn't, you know, sink the company because, you know, sometimes rents are over a thousand dollars a square foot there. That's probably, you know, it's probably what they paid. So, but I, I think, you know, in some ways Indochino is a, is a retailer of the future because they've got, uh, you know, showrooms, which are interactive, engaging spaces for people to go into. I've had a suit made at Indochino, so I've tried it out and, uh, you know, it's very much an engaging experience. And uh, I think that, you know, with other retailers in the future, at least ones that are, successful is you know you'll be going into a store having an engaging experience and one way or the other you'll come out with a product whether or not it's made for you or if it's in the store or if it's going to be shipped to you from another location and with expensive real estate you know having a lot of stock in a store uh, can be a challenge so if uh, you're able to say go into a store and order it perhaps an apple store is an example of that uh, that i think is going to be one model we'll see in the future but people do like that immediate uh, gratification of getting something in their hand as well in the store well, how much of the brick and mortar play is geared towards marketing? You you want be, people to come in, as you say, touch things, feel more comfortable with them. I also think maybe just a lot of people want to have their measurements done in store versus doing best guesstimates at home and then sending them out online. Well, I think marketing is going to be a huge uh, component to the budget for a retailer like Indochino because they've got to get the word out. And uh, you know, I think they do that quite well. Uh, they do it across all kinds of different avenues. So um, and I agree. I mean, I would never <laughs> take my own measurements and, and rely on those to have a yeah. suit made um, because I haven't, you know, I'm not an expert. I've never done it. I might do something wrong. I mean, I, that's a huge, for me, that's a huge amount of uncertainty to the point that I would just say, no, I'm not going to you know, spend a few hundred dollars on a suit. The suits aren't the most expensive, certainly out there, but uh, I wouldn't want to mess that up. So, no, I, I think the showrooms are critical to, uh, you know, at some point, I think having that physical experience is going to be important. I do also think that technology will change at some point. They've got this uh, self-scanning technology. There's some very interesting companies out there doing some stuff right now. But, um, you know, right now it's going into getting physically measured by a human being. That's kind of how Indochino does it. Yeah, I've been seeing some demos with, say, smartphones, and I am very curious about how good that technology gets in maybe the next year or two. Maybe I'll lean more towards that direction. I am very intrigued by getting you know clothing that's going to fit even better just because of the technology you have in your own pocket. And a Canadian company is developing that. So it's uh, I think we'll be seeing some interesting stories coming up in the next year. Yeah. Uh, one last BC brand that uh, we can bring up, uh, Trevor Linden. 
very notable brand, and he's making it known that there is, of course, life after the NHL. He left the Canucks front office about uh, five, six months ago, but he's going big with the focus on his fitness franchises, Orange Theory and Club 16. What do you think of his brand right now as he's moving forward as the face of these fitness companies? I think he's on brand. Um, He's known for athletics, you know, his, his previous career. And uh, he's graduated that, uh, you know, personal brand into, uh, uh, you know, athletic franchises. So he's got, you know, a, a fitness uh, concept with his name on it. And he's also, you know, a uh, franchisee for some Orange Theory locations. And I think that makes sense, you know, keeping uh, on that track that, uh, you know, I guess athletic theme, uh, I think makes a lot of sense. He probably expand, uh, uh, you know, the Trevor Linden gym concept quite extensively. Uh, with Orange Theory, I mean, that is a franchise. They're very, very popular, so yeah. um, he could probably also expand that quite a bit. Uh, it doesn't have his name on it, so people may not you know, be aware of that part. But nevertheless, I think Orange Theory does have a, uh, you know, a brand recognition. It's becoming popular, and it's growing very, very quickly. So uh, you know, I think him having that as part of his business portfolio does make a lot of sense, even for the fact that it's, it's a great concept. Yeah, for sure. So, Craig, as always, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at RetailInsider.com. And that's it for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. And for now, you can find our archives on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd also encourage you to share with your friends and leave us a review as it's going to help others find this podcast. But for now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening.